Okay. Recording in progress. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a Daily Power Parsha. This is our daily look at the Torah portion. This week's Parsha is Yisro, Yitro, Yisro, Jethro. And we are wrapping up our conversation from the whole week. We've had classes. I think we had every day this week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Today is Friday. We're going to do the seventh reading and the half Torah. That's the goal. So let's jump in. This, this week so far, we've covered the episode with Yisro's arrival, him meeting the Jewish people, uh, meeting up again with Moses and the Jewish people, converting to Judaism, and um, his suggestion regarding uh, how to judge the people, how to set up lower courts and higher courts. We then read about the preparation for the experience at Sinai. We then yesterday read about the actual revelation at Sinai with the Ten Commandments. And in the final reading... We're going to read about kind of the aftermath or, you know, the, the moments after the Ten Commandments. How are they summed up in the Torah? So let's take a quick look-see at the text. Not quick look, but let's actually, let's take, let's take a, a deep dive into the text. All right, here we go. Torah reading for Yitro. This is reading number 7, Exodus chapter 20, verse 15. The Torah says, And all the people saw the voices and the torches, the sound of the shofar and the smoking mountain. And the people saw and trembled, so they stood from afar. Basically, the Torah is telling us that the experience, the spectacle at Sinai was such where there was this incredible experience that they saw the voices. And I'm gonna, uh, we're going to talk about that for a few minutes. They saw the voices. You can't see voice. You can't see sound. You see sights and you hear sounds and hear the Torah, Torah is telling us that the actual sense, the senses were mixed up. They saw the voices. They saw the sounds. They saw the sound of the shofar. What does that mean? We'll talk about it in a moment. But either way, they saw and trembled, so they stood from afar. They were, you know, God was concerned that they shouldn't get too close to the mountain. Not only did they not get too close, they, they took a step back. They took a few steps back because of the awesomeness of the experience. They said to Moses, you speak with us and we will hear. But let God not speak with us lest we die. They did not. They said, you know what? This experience of divine communication with the first, of the, uh, first two commandments, it's a little bit too big for us. You tell us what God says. That's going to be the more comfortable approach. But Moses said to the people, Fear not, don't be afraid. For God has come in order to exalt you and in order that his awe shall be upon your faces so that you shall not sin. What Moses is telling the people is, don't, don't, be quick, don't be too quick to discount the experience, or not discount, but to push away the experience and to kind of refuse the experience, say, you know, it's not for us, it's too intense. God wants it to be intense. God wants to lift you up. God wants his awe to be upon you. I like that, ah, not fear. It's yirase, which sometimes is translated as fear, and I always have to correct the translation, say it doesn't really mean fear, it means ah. This time the translation gets it right. right. Why is God creating this entire spectacle, this entire experience? To lift you up, to bring you close, but also to create a sense of, uh, of reverence for God Almighty, which keeps a person away from sin so that you shall not sin. Because it's the awe that keeps a person away from sin. Love 
as we've discussed many times. Love, uh, love doesn't work on that level. I love you. Okay, great. That doesn't preclude loving other things or other people, right? Love is not exclusive in and of itself. Reverence, respect, that's where that exclusivity comes in. That's where the boundaries come in, right? I love, therefore, you know, whatever. I could love, I love doing a mitzvah. And I love doing other things also. I love that sin, that vice. Oh, I love it also. Love doesn't, love doesn't stop that from happening. What does stop it from happening is the awe, the fear, the respect, the reverence, the boundaries. That's not the chesed side, it's the gvura side. That's what makes that happen. So a person says, you know, I love my spouse. And I respect the fact that they don't want me to do X, Y, and Z. So I'm not going to. That's a healthy, that's, that's the formula here. I love God. I'm going to do a mitzvah. I respect God and our relationship. Therefore, I'm not going to commit such and such offense against God's wishes. That is how the narrative makes sense and unfolds. Okay. Let's continue inside. I'm going to speak about seeing the sounds probably at the end. So keep that, keep verse 15. Um, we're going to keep it on the burner. Let's go to verse 18. The people remained far off at a distance, but Moses drew near to the opaque darkness where God was. The opaque darkness, Rashi says, is that cloud, the thick cloud. Remember God said, I'm going to appear to the people in a thick cloud? That's the opaque darkness. That's where God was. The Lord said to Moses, so shall you say to the children of Israel. Tell this to the people. You have seen. Atem reisim. You, atem means you all. Y'all. All y'all have seen. That from the heavens I have spoken with you. And that word seen is very important. You haven't been told about divine revelation. You haven't been informed that God loves you. God has a message for you. You saw it with your own eyes. No, you weren't told anything by a third party. You heard it directly. You saw it directly from Hashem, from God Almighty. That idea of seeing is powerful. Seeing is believing. You hear something. Okay, I heard it, but I might hear something else. I might discount what I heard. It might not make such a big impression. But God says to Moses, tell the people, you didn't just hear the Ten Commandments. You saw the divine spectacle. You saw that from the heavens I spoke with you. Thus, verse 20, God reiterates the prohibition against idol worship. You shall not make images of anything that is with me. In other words, don't make images of anything that I've created. Not the sun, not the moon, not the stars, not the birds, not the plants, not the trees, not the people, not the fish, not the dolphins, not the sharks. Don't make images, graven images, like I said before, uh, commandment number two. Don't make idols, getchkes, don't make figures of idols to worship. Gods of silver or gods of gold, you shall not make for yourselves. Don't make little, god, little gold or silver gods. Don't do it. Speaking of silver and gold, God continues to tell Moses in the aftermath of, of the revelation at Sinai, an altar of earth you shall make for me. Mizbach Adama. Adama. Adama is earth. By the way, the Hebrew word Adama is also where the word Adam comes from. Adama means earth. 
Adam means man. Why? Adam, man, was taken from, taken from the Adama, from the earth. The human being is created from the earth. Adam, Adama. So God says, an altar of earth you shall make for me. Dust to dust. When we make a mistake, we have to go back to our source, go back to our roots, humble ourselves back to where we started, offering an offering on the altar, which is also made of earth. Okay. Let's continue. Middle of verse 21. So an altar of earth you shall make for me, and you shall slaughter beside it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your cattle. Yeah. When you make the altar, make sure you bring all these sacrifices, you know, these specific types of, of sacrifices to me. Wherever I allow my name to be mentioned, I will, come to, I will come to you and bless you. In other words, in the holy spaces that I designate my name upon, like Jerusalem, etc., that is the place where I will come to you and bless you. You come to me and offer sacrifices. That's where we're going to hang out. It's all, there's, there's a context to all of this, right? This is after Revelation at Sinai. God tells Moses, this is what you should tell the people. You've seen with your own eyes that I'm legit. Therefore, don't make idols. Only serve me. That's it. That's the juxtaposition. One, you've seen it with your own eyes that, that I'm legit. Two, therefore, don't create any foreign deities. And number three, only serve me. Verse 22, let's continue. And when you make for me an altar of stones, you shall not build them of hewn stones. Stones cut by metal, lest you wield your sword upon it and desecrate it. Do not use metal implements to cut the stones for the altar because metal, as we'll see in the commentaries, metal is a, an instrument or an implement of weaponry. It's an implement of war, of bloodshed. And the altar is meant to create, to foster peace in the world and not violence. Therefore, we don't use a, a material that's typically associated with violence and killing and shedding blood and you shall not ascend my with with steps upon my altar so that your nakedness shall not be exposed upon it when you go up to the altar don't make steps right because when you make steps then the kohen has to take a step and it might you know open up the robe a little bit or whatever it is create a ramp a more gradual approach and there's something that i want to share on that as well let's look at rashi um, yes excuse me so getting back to like not using the sword, is that the rationale for why the Temple Menorah was to be, was a piece of gold, one piece of gold and hammered, rather than... Could, could be, I haven't seen it related to that, I've seen the hammer being related to the idea of having integrity when it comes to um, Torah and, 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 and shining light to have that integrity of one piece, a unibody design almost, as opposed to a composite. Is it because... Metal is a violent item, but the menorah is made of metal. I'm not sure that I see that as being exactly connected. I mean, yes, we're not cutting it and welding it, but this is the idea that the altar is made to be made of, of natural items, earth and stone. No metal. I mean, metal is also natural, but no metal implement to cut it because metal cutting it is going to create, I think I see what you're saying. Use natural stones, you know, holistic stones, and don't, don't cut or form 
The stones like no, the menorahs. I'm saying, I'm saying I'm saying we just learned that don't use a metal instrument to cut. So by taking a piece of solid gold and then hammering it into the menorah, that's not using a metal right. cutting Right. Right. True, true. Again, I haven't seen that connection, but I hear what you're saying. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. Um, it's interesting, it's for this reason that at our, I think I mentioned this before, at our Shabbat tables, the custom is that before we say the blessing after a meal, before we bench, the custom is you take off the knife from the table. Because even though, and some people, by the way, have a custom not to use knives for their challah. They just break up with their hands in order not to put a weapon, so to speak, something that can cut and harm on their, on their table. Now, what do they do for the, for, the, for the brisket and the chicken and, or the fish or whatever it is that they eat with, maybe with a knife? I don't know. Maybe it's just the challah because that's like the ceremonial part of it. But some people, don't, some people it's, not, it's not my custom, but some people um, will not use a knife. But even if you do use a knife for the challah, the custom is to remove it from the table before the blessing after meal. But the same idea that the table is like an altar. The altar was not supposed to have you know, knives and swords and whatever. So we also try to minimize the, um, the degree to which we have those things on our table, on our Shabbat tables, or really anytime. Okay, let's continue. Rashi. This was Wednesday night's conversation. The people saw, Rashi says, from the Mechilta, from the Medrash, to teach us that there was not one blind person among them. How do we know that there was no mute person among them? Torah says, and all the people replied. From what do we know that there was no deaf person? It says, we will do and we will hear. That means that they could hear. All right, the voices. Rashi says, they saw what was audible. They saw what was audible, which is impossible to see elsewhere. In other words, there's no other context in which this is possible. At Sinai, they had that possibility. The voices, they heard the voices. What voices? Emanating from the mouth of the Almighty. Many voices, voices coming from every direction, from the heavens, from the earth. It says God's voice was like coming at them in stereo surround sound, 5.1 channels of audio with a subwoofer. Like it was all encompassing, all pervasive. That's how they heard the voice of God with the Ten Commandments. Let's continue some Rashi's. Um, okay. God has come in order to exalt you. What does that mean? To magnify you, this is Moses says to the people, to magnify you in the world so that your name should circulate among the nations that, his, that he and his glory revealed himself to you. Everyone, you're going to be the talk of the town. Everyone say, oh, the children of Israel. Ooh, that's the nation that, uh, that, that, that God revealed himself to. That's, that's a, a benefit. It's a... Um, Fringe benefit of this experience. Let's continue. And in order that is awe by way of the fact that you saw that he is feared and dreaded, you will know that there's none besides him and you will fear him. In other words, the fact that you see the angels or the, the earth itself trembling when God shows up, that will make you also tremble a little bit. Maybe not tremble, but also have this awe and respect. So it says, the people remained far up, but Moses drew near to the opaque darkness. Rashi says, that is inside all three partitions. In other words, in the innermost space. Because there's darkness, there's the cloud, and then there's the opaque darkness. As it is said, in the mountains, and the mountain was burning with fire unto the heart of the heavens, darkness, cloud, and opaque darkness. 
Darkness is level one. Cloud is even deeper, level two. Opaque darkness is level three. And opaque darkness is synonymous with the thickness of the cloud, Ba'av Hanan, which God had said to him, Moses, behold, I'm coming to you in the thickness of the cloud. That's the deepest space. So point is that Moses went not just close to God, but in the deepest space that he could possibly get to Hashem. Okay, tell the people, God says to Moses, you have seen that from the heavens I've spoken with you. Rashi says, I mentioned this before, you have seen. There is a difference between what a person sees <coughs> and what others tell him. Concerning what others tell him, sometimes his heart is divided whether to believe it or not. Someone tells you, oh, you'll never guess what happened. I met so-and-so. Either I believe you or I don't believe you, but it's not like ironclad. But what a person sees, they know for a fact. So God says, tell the people, remind the people, you saw with your own eyes. Don't take anybody else's word for it. You saw it. You witnessed it. You experienced it. Legit. All right, no images. No making images. Rashi says, you shall not make an, a likeness of my servants who serve me on high. Don't make any likeness, any image, any picture, any sculpture, any depiction of any of my servants, sun, moon, stars, heaven, earth, creatures. None of my servants. Don't copy any of them. Gods of silver, the statement Rashi says, comes to warn us about the, the cherubim, the figurines that were on top of the ark which you made to stand with me in the temple, that they, not, that they may not be made of silver. For if you deviate for, to make them of silver, they are to me as gods. They are idols. you got to make them of gold. When you make it per God's specifications, it's not an idol. It's what God wants. When you make it your own way, now it's an idol. You create gold, uh, silver figurines in the temple. Blasphemous. God says, it's kosher. <coughs> Don't create gods of gold. That comes to warn us that one should not add more cherubim to the two, which is the number God required. For if you make four, they are to me as gods of gold. Once again, if you're doing it for me, then, 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 then worship me. If you're doing it for yourself, then it's an idol. Straight up, it's an idol. It's a powerful lesson in life. We talk about this very often. Are you serving God or serving yourself? Right? I think we ended up talking about this on Wednesday night. Um... Maybe Sunday at Kabbalah and Coffee, last Sunday. Who are we serving? God or us? If I do it because it feels good, if I do it because I understand, because I, if I do it because I like it, then I'm just serving myself. God, I know you said you want two gold cherubim, cherubim, I'm going to create silver. You're serving yourself. It's an idol. I'm going to make four, not just two, I'm going to make four for you. God, I love you, I'm going to make four. Serving yourself. It's an idol. Two gold cherubim? That's what God asked. Bang the table a little too hard. That's what God asked. Anything else? Idle. <coughs> Don't make these for yourselves. Rashi says, You shall not say I will make cherubim in the synagogues and the study halls in the manner that I made them in the temple. Therefore it says you shall not make for yourselves. Don't make private edition cherubim for your home and office. Or synagogue, study. Okay, an altar of earth. The altar needs to be made of earth. Rashi says it has to be attached to the ground. <coughs> Meaning that it should not be built on pillars or on a block of wood. 
not a, it's not built on a platform. It has to be built on the earth itself. Alternatively, alternatively, it means that Moses would fill the hollow of the altar with earth when they, the Israelites encamped. Lahavdil. I think of a basketball hoop. You know those portable basketball hoops? So they have these portable basketball hoops that um, you can fill with sand or with water to, keep the, to, to, weigh it, to weigh it down so it doesn't fall over. In Lahavdil, I'm not comparing a basketball hoop to the, uh, to the altar. I mean, I kind of am, but I'm not, like, it's not a one-for-one. One. But here it says, so the altar itself was a box. What was inside? Hollow. According to, this, according to one opinion, Moses would fill it up with earth. Every time they set up the, 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 uh, the Mishkan, the tabernacle, which we haven't yet read about, every time they set it up, they put in earth. And when they were traveling, they probably emptied it out so they could transport it so it could be portable. Let's continue. Rashi. Yeah, make it for me. From the beginning, it shall be made in my name. Don't repurpose an altar. Don't say, oh, I have this great box. It'll make a great altar. You can make it from the beginning for that purpose. Rabbi, so this altar is just for the Mount Sinai, right? No, according to this, it seems like he's talking about ultimately the altar that will be in the temple. It is, right? Yeah, okay. yeah. It's a little strange because, like, who's talking about a, a tabernacle now? We didn't even, we don't even have that. Okay. I mean, that was supposed to, honestly, that was supposed to be the next item on the agenda. The sin of the golden calf got involved. It was a little complicated. It got pushed off a little bit. But that was really the next step. Next step was, you know, it seems like God is alluding to that right here. So that's, you, that's what you it seems. just said that, so when they traveled with the Michigan, they put earth in the... Alter? Only when they stopped. When they when they stopped and set it up, they filled it with earth. And when they were traveling, they emptied it out so that it could be, right. you know, okay. decent right. weight. Otherwise, <coughs> otherwise it would be too too heavy to carry. You would imagine. Okay. Let's. Continue. Um, let's see, let's see, let's see. Don't use metal, hewn stones, iron tools. Here we go. Take a look. Using iron or metal implements on the altar would desecrate it. Why? Thus you have learned that if you wield iron upon it, you have desecrated it. Why? For the altar was created to lengthen man's days. And iron was created to shorten man's days because it is used to make swords. Such a powerful idea. What was the purpose of the altar? The altar was for atonement. A person messed up. If they messed up, they might be taken out of the game. Who knows? You mess up, you might get uh, thrown out. So God says, no, I'm giving second chances. Go to the altar. We have an altar. We have a, a process, tshuva, repentance, right? Returning to your real self. <clears throat> Bring a sacrifice. All this stuff. And you get second chances. 
third chances, fourth chances, etc. So the altar is all about giving people more time. And what's metal? Giving people less time, taking away time. So God says it's just incompatible. It's just not the, not the right fit. Just not the right fit. It is improper, God says, that the shortener of life be wielded over the, lengther, the lengthener of life. Moreover, so going further, the altar makes peace between Israel and their Father in Heaven. Therefore, the cutter and destroyer shall not come upon it. Right? It's all about the peace. It's all about, the altar is all about peace. It's all about reconciliation. It's all about the Jew and, and Hashem getting back in a good place in the relationship. So the cutter and destroyer should not come upon it. In other words, peace is all about coming together. And cutting is about separating, eliminating. Again, incompatible. <sighs> Listen to this. And Rashi kind of wraps this Rashi up with a beautiful idea. The matter is a kavachomer, a fortiori conclusion. Let's see what it means. If concern, you have to read it with this tone of voice. If concerning the stones which neither see, hear, nor speak. Because of the fact that they make peace, the Torah says you shall now wield iron upon them. If the Torah is so concerned about stones, that stones that, can't, that don't have a consciousness, that don't, don't have an awareness, that stones should not have iron upon them, how much more are we certain that one who makes peace between husband and wife, between family and family, between man and his fellow, will have no troubles befall him? If the Torah is so concerned about stones, not having anything negative come upon them, how much more so human beings, and therefore how much more so someone who, who fosters and facilitates peace, someone who creates, someone who's able to, recon to bring reconciliation between people that are quarreling, etc., how much more so will that person not have any trouble befall them, no, no metal will cut them down, no iron implements will shorten their life, they'll live long and healthy and happy because they are peacemakers amongst others. So if the altar which makes peace, no metal touches it, then the human being who makes peace, the peacemaker, human being, certainly no iron, no metal, no violence will touch them and they will live long and prosper. It's a beautiful blessing. Beautiful blessing here at the end of this Rashi. Okay, let's continue. Um, Rashi says about the steps, when you build a ramp for the altar or when you build a, uh, an approach, do not make it with steps. Echelons in old French. Something like that. But it must be smooth and slanting. So like a ramp. <coughs> a ramp with steps is called steps. But I digress. Don't make the incline. Don't make it steps up. Make it a ramp. So that your nakedness shall not be exposed, Rashi says, because due to the steps, you must widen your stride. Although it would not be an actual exposure of nakedness, for is written in make them linen pants. They're wearing pants underneath the robe. They have a robe, but then pants. So it's not like if they take a large step it's, and, the, and the robe opens a little bit. It's not like there's actual exposure happening. Nevertheless, widening the strides is close to exposing the nakedness of the one ascending the steps. 
In other words, just taking large steps is still not, not modest. And you behave toward them, the stones, in a humiliating manner. Look at that. You're, you're humiliating the stones. Not even about the Kohen. The Kohen is, Kohen is fine. He's got pants on. He's not embarrassed. But he's embarrassing the stones almost. It's like it's not nice for the stones to take big steps. Now these matters are a kavachaymer. Again, an a fortiori conclusion, like we said before. If concerning these stones which have no intelligence to object to their humiliation, the Torah said that because they are necessary, you shall not behave toward them in a humiliating manner. If the Torah is so concerned about stones and the feelings of stones which don't have feelings, so then your friend who is creating the likeness of your creator and who does object to being humiliated, how much more so must you be careful not to embarrass him? So if, you, if you're supposed to not embarrass, if to be careful not to embarrass the stones, how much more so not to embarrass another human being? So here we have some powerful themes, some really beautiful themes and lessons from the concern that the Torah has, that God has for the altar, for the stones of the altar. No metal, no metal. The, the stones of the altar are all about peacemaking. Don't cut it. Don't cut it down. Don't, don't use violent means against it. It's a peacemaker. Stay away, from the, stay away with the violence. The blessing is for us as well. When we make peace, we are blessed, please God, with love and peace in our lives, in our own lives. When we facilitate peace for others, Hashem blesses us with peace and none of the negativity. And the second lesson, and the, second, and the last Rosh that we just read is... That just like we're not meant to embarrass the stones by taking wide steps to the alt up to the altar, we're for sure not supposed to embarrass anybody else. Not to say or do or indicate or hint or whatever it is, anything that might embarrass a fellow, that is absolutely off limits. All right. So that's, that's, the, that's the final verse and wraps up the Torah reading itself. I want to share a few ideas and then we're going to quickly run through the Haftorah. So idea number one is about seeing the sounds. The Torah says, V'chala'am, and the whole nation, Ro'im et ha'kolot, they saw the voices. They saw the sound of the shofar. Rashi says, it's impossible, but they did it, it happened. The Rebbe asks why, what's the significance? They saw the sounds? And according to Talmud, one opinion says, they also heard the sights. Sugar. They saw the sounds, and they heard the sights. What does it even mean? They should have said they saw the sounds, they heard the sights. Sorry. They saw the sights and they heard the sounds. Why, why is it mixed up? And I've shared this before, so I'm not going to go through the whole elaboration on it, but just a reminder. There's seeing and there's hearing. What we see is typically what's real, what's right in front of us. What we hear is, you know, a rumor. Because if you saw it, you wouldn't hear it, you would see it. If it's so obvious, it's, see, it's seeing, not hearing. Hearing is, I don't see it, but I hear about it. In our reality, physical and spiritual are the parallels. It's the physical stuff that we see. The cell phone in my hand is not something I, I heard about. Somebody told me about a phone. It's right here. I see it. It's right here, right in front of me. I see it. Yeah, I got it. But what about God? God is more of hearing than seeing. I know, I know, I know we can see God everywhere and whatever, but it's still a meditation. It's still an interpretation. It's not, it's not seeing. It's understanding and perceiving and knowing. And 
It's hearing, not seeing. Seeing means I see it. Randomly, here's a screwdriver. I don't know, it's not my desk. It's a screwdriver on this desk. I see it. No one told me, oh, by the way, you're going to find a screwdriver on the desk, FYI. Then I'll know that it should be there. Nah, I don't, I don't need to know. I see it. I see it. I don't need to know about it. I, it's, it's literally right here. So physical is right here. Spiritual is somewhere. We hear about spiritual. At Mount Sinai, everything was crossed. Everything was reversed. They saw the sounds. The sounds being God, godliness. What's usually heard, that's what they saw at Sinai. At Sinai, they saw God. Their whole perception shifted. They had a perception shift. What they saw as reality was God. And what they heard, what they heard about as a rumor, were the sights, the physical stuff. So they heard, sorry, they saw what was normally heard. They saw godliness, which is normally understood through uh, a book. They saw and they heard what's normally seen. The screwdriver, I believe I once heard about that. Huh? I, don't, I don't see it though, because I see God. This reminds us of the, it's kind of like focus on a camera. You have two, two people. Who are you focusing on? The one in front or the one behind? One at a time. One at a time. Are we focusing on the physical, to which the spiritual is a little bit blurry? Or do we focus on the spiritual, and now the physical is a little bit blurry? At Sinai, they refocused the lens of the camera. At Sinai, the camera lens focused in on spirituality. The focus locked in on God. And they saw God. Everything else, the screwdriver, was blurry. It was a rumor. They didn't see it. They heard about it, maybe. They saw the sounds. They heard the sights. At Sinai, God was true. Divinity was real. Torah was legit. The goal now is to recreate that experience to the best that we can in our own lives. To make God as real as possible. To make our soul as real as possible. To live authentically. It's a challenge, but that's the goal. So that's one insight. And the last insight I want to share with you is about the steps. We talked about the steps and about not embarrassing the steps and therefore not embarrassing anyone else, certainly. There's another element, which is not to embarrass yourself. Sometimes we get inspired. And after, in the aftermath of the inspiration or within that experience of inspiration, we want to take big steps. It's like, oh my gosh, I'm so inspired Jewishly, I'm going to start doing all the mitzvahs. Taking very big steps. The problem is you take a big step, you might end up exposing yourself. What I mean by that is you might end up exposing the fact that you're not ready for all those steps. Yes, you got inspired, and yes, it's great to take steps, but you got to take measured steps. So the Torah says, God says, you just had a revelation at Sinai. And you might think, oh, I can do anything. And that's great to feel that way. But make sure you build a ramp. Make sure you set yourself up for success. Make sure that your growth is gradual and attainable. Make sure that it's grounded in reality and not some fantasy of what growth looks like, of what 
the next step looks like. Make sure that your steps are measured, that your footing is secure. Otherwise, the, the tumble down is severe. Reminds me of what we were talking about yesterday with mountain climbing. And Sarah mentioned the story about the ice, the climbing, and the, the guy who fell through. If, and I'm not, not necessarily saying it's the same story, but just the concept, right? Climbing. You got to climb slow and steady. You got to make sure that with every, every, every next level of ascent that it's, 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 it's deliberate. You got to plan. You know exactly where you're going to go. You know exactly why this is stable enough to hold you. If you just decide, you know, I'm just going to jump up without a plan, the fall is a long way to fall. And that's not a good thing. No one wants to do that. So Hashem says, you just got really inspired at Sinai. In, in our own lives, there's always that Sinai, those Sinai moments that get us really inspired. Okay, great. That's good. Now you're motivated. That's great. This is right where, right where you're supposed to be. Now build a ramp. Build a ramp. Instead of trying to jump too far. Too far, too fast. Okay, message in our lives. Slow and steady progress wins the race. There's no race, but slow and steady gets you there. All right, let's do Haftorah for a few minutes. And then we will close it out for the week. Haftorah. Here we go. Isaiah chapter 6. Powerful stuff. Powerful stuff. In the year of the death of King Uzziah. In Hebrew it's Uzziahu. Maybe in English it's Uzziah. I'm not sure how you pronounce it in English. But in Hebrew it's Uzziahu. In the year of the death of King Uzziah, I saw, I, Isaiah, I saw the Lord sitting on a high and exalted throne. This is um, Isaiah's vision of the divine. We cannot take it literally. He's not, God is not literally like a, like a human being sitting on a throne. It's meant, it's all metaphor here. But this is his vision. He's repeating his vision. Isaiah says, I saw the Lord sitting on a high and exalted throne, and his lower extremity filled the temple. Sraphim, angels, stood above him, sorry, stood above for him, six wings, six wings to each one. Again, do angels really have wings? This is the way it's depicted. To each way. Yeah. With two, he would cover his face, and with two, he would cover his feet, and with two, he would fly. Yeah, what did the angels do with six feet, with six wings? Two wings covered the angel's face, two covered the angel's feet, and with two the angel flies. And one called to the other, one angel, one, seraph, one of the seraphim called to the other and said, Holy, 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 kadosh, kadosh, kadosh is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. We say this in davening every single day about how the angels praise God by saying, holy, holy, holy. Holy, holy, holy means, holy, holy means separate. Holy means God is above, above, above. Like three levels of separation we are, the angels are from God. Holy, holy, holy means God is higher, more transcendent, more transcendent, more transcendent than anything we can imagine. And yet, even though God is transcendent, the whole earth is full of His glory. I'm giving you a, a mystical explanation. Even though God is so transcendent, God is not removed and aloof. God is... Right here, the whole earth is full of his glory. And the doorposts quaked from the voice of him who called, and the house became filled with smoke. And I said, 
Isaiah, who's having this vision, I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, a man, uh, sorry, and amidst the people of unclean lips I dwell. For the king, the Lord of hosts, have my eyes seen. So how, I, I'm seeing God and yet I know who I am? What's going on? Like, I know I'm not, <laughs> I know my limitations. And one of the Shrafim flew to me. And in his hand, the angel's hand was a glowing coal with tongs. He had taken it from upon the altar. And he caused it to touch my mouth. And he said, Behold, this has touched your lips and your iniquity shall be removed and your sin shall be atoned for. The, st- the burning coal from the altar touched his lips. Obviously, it's a metaphor. It's not like the angel is flying with tongs holding a coal. If we're picturing this, we're just on the wrong page here. It's all metaphor. It's all a vision that he's interpreting with, with human language, with, with a human story, with a human narrative, human depiction, or whatever, some sort of depiction. It's not, uh, it's, it's, not, it's not a literal, you know, it's not literally his vision. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. Isaiah raised his hand. And he said, Go and say to these people. Go and tell the Jewish people, Indeed you hear, but you do not understand. Indeed you see, but you do, but you do not know. In other words, you're hearing, you're seeing, but you're not getting it. The people's heart is becoming fat. And his ears are becoming heavy and his eyes are becoming sealed. Lest he see with his eyes and hear with his ears and his heart understand and repent and be healed. Basically, God is saying dangerous trends are happening. People's heart is becoming fat. They're becoming complacent. Ears are becoming heavy. They're not listening. Eyes becoming sealed. They're not seeing. Right? They need to see with their eyes, hear with their ears. Their their hearts need to understand. And they need to repent and be healed. And I said, until when, O Lord? Until when? Where does this end? And God said, until cities be desolate without inhabitant and houses without people, and the ground lies waste and desolate. That's what's going to happen if things don't improve. And the Lord removes the people far away. That's the exile, of course. God is going to, God says, I'm going to banish everyone in the deserted places, be many in the midst of the land, and Israel will be deserted. And when there is yet a tenth of it, it will again be purged like the terebinth and like the oak, which in the fall have but a trunk. The holy seed is its trunk. And here we have this this powerful idea. Powerful idea of the desolation, of the exile, of the churban, the destruction of Israel, the temple, etc. That uh, the purging of the land, it will be purged which in the fall have but a trunk, right? It's just a trunk. There's no, there's, no, there's no leaves, there's no fruit. It's just a trunk. I mean branches also, but it's just, it's just wood. That's not, there's no, you don't see life in it. And yet the metaphor continues and concludes with the holy seed is its trunk or in its trunk, even within the trunk that seems dead, unblossoming, just still and silent, there are seeds of life. And we end the Haftorah on a, on a note of hope. God tells Isaiah, you got to tell the people, the heart, your hearts are becoming fat, your ears are becoming heavy, your eyes are becoming sealed. You're stopping to care. And if you stop to care, if you stop caring, it's not going to end well. This place is going to be desolate. You're going to be banished. The temple will be destroyed. What's going to be at the end, what's going to be left it's just the trunk of the tree. It reminds me of the giving tree, that book, right, from uh, Shel Silverstein. 
where the story ends with just a trunk, a stump. But it ends, this Haftorah ends on a positive note. Zera Kodesh Matzavta, the holy seed is his trunk. Even the trunk has, the holy seed has the spirit of rebirth and rejuvenation. And thus, as the Haftorah concludes, it concludes on a note of hope. And that is, despite the challenge, despite the difficulty, despite the expulsion, despite the persecution, the exile, the diaspora element of, of our people, the fact that we're not home, Hashem promises that the trunk that remains has a seed inside, and that seed will regenerate, and that seed will once again blossom. And spring, what's the Lushan? What's the expression? Spring, um, hope springs eternal. There's always a second round. There's always a second act and a third act and a fourth act. There's always another chance. And there's always a rebirth. That's what we believe. A rebirth that will happen. All right, so what's the context of the, of the Haftorah? The Haftorah, which, sorry, the parasha, what's the connection? The Torah portion, which speaks of divine revelation at Sinai. We saw God. The Haftorah speaks about Isaiah seeing God, Right? We saw God at Sinai. Isaiah, this is Isaiah's vision of God. He sees God on the throne. He sees the Srafim. He sees the angels. Kadosh, 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 they're saying. Uh, angel comes to him with a coal from the altar. You know, in his mouth, you're healed. The warning about Israel, the Jewish people becoming, you know, um, unfeeling toward God. The warning, be careful, lest that continue. Otherwise, it's, gonna, it's not going to get good. At the end, ultimately, even, even if it doesn't get good, it'll get better. And that's the hope that we take. It's the hope. That's what we live with. That's literally our identity. It's the hope we live with. Promise of Mashiach, promise of redemption, promise of a better future. But also the idea that, <clears throat> that we know what God looks like on some level. We know what God looks like. How, what does God look like? Draw a picture? No, not, not, it's not about drawing a picture. It's like the, the mother that walks into the kitchen and sees the daughter drawing. And she says, what are you drawing? Ah. Drawing God. No one knows what God looks like. They will soon when I'm finished. Right? That's the dialogue. So, you know, it's, it, we don't know what God looks like, but we do know what, what it means to see God. What it means to see God is to see what God wants. God told us what He wants. Ten Commandments. God told us what He wants. He wants a world in which there's beauty and harmony and peace and love and no metal and no cutting down lives and no shortening lives and no, no cutting, separating people. It's about bringing people together. We know what God wants. God wants Kadosh, Kadosh. God is, 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 is the ultimate awesome being, the creator, and yet God is right here. God is beyond, but God is within. God is right here in this moment. This moment is sacred. This person is sacred. This experience is sacred. But what happens when you don't hear? When you don't see? When you don't feel? We've got a problem. But ultimately, at the core of our being, we have an Hashem, we have a soul. That's the seed of God that's inside of us that knows the truth and you can't keep truth buried for too long. So, I want to wish everyone a good Shabbos. May the inner spark of the soul come out. On Shabbos, we have a Neshama Yaseira, extra soul, a little extra soul to carry us and inspire us through these 24, 25, 26 hours. May our souls be aflame on Shabbat and, of course, throughout the week, but certainly on Shabbat. May we see the truth, hear the truth, know the truth, feel the truth. And may we be inspired to create more beauty, harmony, and love in this world and transform this world into a home for God and bring Mashiach. And let us say, Amen. All right, thank you for joining. It's great to study this week, another week of DPP in the books. Next week, literally in the books, next week we begin Mishpatim, my Bar Mitzvah Torah portion. 
My birthday is next week as well. So we'll, uh, I'm sure we'll have a bit of a DPP celebration. I think my birthday is on Tuesday. I should probably check it up right now. Let's check it out quickly. Um, let us see. Yes, Tuesday, 23rd of Shvan. That's the big day. All right, so looking forward to another action-packed week. Um, also, Tuesday night, meditation from Sinai. You definitely want to be part of that. If you're not yet joined up, definitely uh, jump in. It's Tuesday night and Thursday. What else is coming up? That's kind of it. Not, not it, but that's it for now. Um, I also sent out an email yesterday about a new program called Hidden Secrets of Israel, a virtual tour, which is going to be amazing. So join that. And the 36 uh, concept, is that real or is it historical or is it, the, is it part of the novel? It's interesting because there is a thing about 36 in Judaism, but he kind of plays off. I haven't, I haven't read the book. But he kind of, you know, takes some artistic license with that. There is a concept of 36 hidden tzaddikim in every generation. So the novel is about, you know, what happened. I think he told me more or less it's like a dad who's one of the 36. And he has to at some point tell his sons about this. And there's a whole mystery of 36 holy places. I mean, there's a liberty. It's not, it's, it's historical fiction, right? It's like... Uh, he says it's like Da Vinci Code. Don't, don't read it as, uh, as truth. It's like it's based off of, there are elements of truth, and it's... Uh... And he also talks about Israel Antiquities, and, you know, I partnered with the yes. friends of the Israel Antiquities. Indeed, indeed. Yeah, so there's a lot of connections, he's, and he's a really cool guy. So that's going to be a lot of fun. So just putting it out there, uh, February 17th, I believe it is, Thursday night. All right, have a wonderful Shabbos. We'll see you guys next week, Kabbalah and Coffee Sunday, etc. We have a full action-packed week. All right, take care, all. We'll see you. Good Shabbos. Dina, Sarah, Olia. Take care, everybody. Shabbos, everyone. Shabbos. Take care.